welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your solo host today, Monica Hadley. And with us for this hour is Robert Boyers, who founded Samagundi, an international quarterly, a literary magazine, in 1965 and continues to edit the journal to teach at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York, and to direct the New York State Summer Writers Institute. Boyers is the author of hundreds of essays and a dozen books, most recently a widely discussed 2019 book on the culture wars called The Tyranny of Virtue, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for Political Heresies. And the book we are talking about today is more in the lines of a memoir, and it's Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Sontag and George Steiner. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Robert. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. <laughs> now, what made you decide to write this particular book? Well, actually, um, you know, I, I was very close to both of these uh, these people, and uh, I wrote about them, about their work, um, several different times uh, over the decades. Uh, and then um, in um, February of 2020, George Steiner died at the age of 90. He was a very close friend of mine. He was my teacher in graduate school. Um, decades and decades earlier, and um, his his granddaughter was uh, was a, a student here at Skidmore College, where my wife and I teach, and and we were with her when she was grieving and so on, and uh, and I thought I would I would write a little memoir about uh, George, and um, and as I got into it, I realized I really had a book to write, and uh, and the further along I went, I thought it would be really interesting to put him together with Susan Zuntag, two writers who dis disliked one another, to put it mildly, <laughs> you know, and, and, and yet you were, and, and yet you were close friends with both of them. Absolutely. And they both, both of them wondered how we could bear uh, to be close to the other one. Um, <laughs> You know, and it was it was in such a degree that, um, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, they never got together uh, any time in their entire lives, except on several occasions when they were invited to appear at the same place, occasionally under our auspices, sometimes in other auspices, and they would say, "No, I, I won't, I won't appear on that panel or that program unless Boyers can can uh, can be the moderator and sit there between us and maintain the peace." <laughs> <laughs> so do you do you feel like you know from reading this um you know it's almost like they disliked each other because they saw one another in the other or they saw oh, themselves in the other I think that's very true. I mean, they were they were in their ways. I think very competitive with one another. Um, they often wrote about the same things almost at the same time. I mean, really, uh, within one year, um, uh, George Steiner in the '60s wrote an essay called "Night Words" about pornography, and the year later or so, Susan Sontag wrote an essay about pornography. And, uh, and there are parallels of that sort all through their careers, in, in spite of the fact that they they were also very different and had, in some cases, very different interests. I mean, Steiner never wrote about uh, film, about movies, and Zontag wrote some of the greatest essays ever written about film. So th they were different. They weren't, they weren't the same. Um, but, but nevertheless, they were highly competitive, and they were certainly, for a period of about 30 or 40 years, um, they were two of the most prominent uh, writer intellectuals in the world, um, and you know, they had a following, both of them, that was quite enormous. You know, and this was this is easily measurable. You know, when either one of them gave a public lecture, uh, a, a vast audience would would arrive to be there, and uh, and their, their books sold um, large numbers of copies in a way that a sort of demanding books by writers like this just never otherwise did. So they really were similar in certain ways, profoundly different in other ways, and always very competitive. Now, I have to admit, I don't know, or before I read this book anyway, did not know a lot about either one of them in, you know, when they were writing the things that really brought them to prominence in the 1960s. I was like, you know, seven years old, so it wasn't really <laughs> in my radar. <laughs> and <laughs> <You're right. laughs> what, what did make them so, you know, how did they 
garner such prominence? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to sort of answer that question and think about it. Um, you know, um, for one thing, um, they, they were both of them very brilliant. And so if you were, if you, if you get on a YouTube, for example, right now, uh, and you watch, um, Steiner delivering a lecture, which you can do on YouTube, uh, or watch him in an interview, you can do, do that. You see, he's just the most eloquent and sort of brilliant person you've ever seen. And the same is true if you go on YouTube and you take a look at, at Susan Zontag. So there was that. There was something electric in their presence, which was communicated in virtually any setting they were in. So there was that. Then both of them um, had a way of sort of putting their finger on the pulse um, of the um, intellectual moment they were in, so that um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, both of them were writing things that everyone either had been interested in or because they wrote it and wrote it in the way that they did would make everyone interested in. So when they wrote about pornography and it suddenly became a subject that people uh, sort of debated, when George Steiner wrote about uh, the Holocaust, uh, it was a subject that uh, hundreds of people in the United States were writing about, but his essays on the Holocaust were rather different in the way that he handled the subject. Um, and and so that, that was true for each thing that they did. Then it was another, you know, another, there were other factors. Steiner was often referred to as the polymath's polymath. That is to say, he was the most learned person on the planet. It's not only that. <laughs> I mean, he really was. It was not only that he was fluent in six languages, which, which he was. Uh, you can see him on, um, on German television or French television or Italian television talking comfortably and fluently with other leading thinkers and writers about this or that. And uh, so it wasn't just that he was a polymath, but he was a polymath who could write for all of us. Um, he was the book critic of the New Yorker magazine for 30 years, and he wrote brilliantly about all sorts of subjects uh, in a way that made everybody want to read them. Um, so there was that. When Zontag wrote about uh, photography, she made the subject richer and more interesting than it had ever seemed to anybody before. Uh, she wrote just a brilliant book called On Photography, but she wrote lots of books. Um, and uh, so uh, I think they became famous and compelling because they had all of this equipment. They were smart. They were learned. Um, they had their finger on the pulse of, of all sorts of things. And they both of them had the capacity to write not just for scholars and intellectuals, but to write for everybody. And that's a fantastic gift that most learned academics simply don't have. I, that is very true. And I, the only, you know, the one other person I can think of like that is Noam Chomsky. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Who's much more, you know, much more political than, yes. uh, than, yeah. <laughs> than Steiner. Steiner wrote about political things occasionally. And Zontag wrote a couple of books, you know, that deal with politics. Um, uh, you know, she wrote about a, uh, a trip to North Vietnam during the Vietnam War. She wrote essays on Cuba and, and that sort of thing during the Castro era. But, you know, Tromsky, yeah, was a, a much more uh, sort of political figure. But he, in the same category with the two of them, um, deserves to be called a public intellectual, you know, taking on all sorts of political and cultural issues the way both of them did as well. That's a very good description, I think, a public intellectual. Now, in, <laughs> in our uh, climate today, being called intellectual might not be something, you might not want to be labeled as an intellectual because <laughs> half of our population seems to think that's a bad thing. Well, I think you're right. Um, there's no question about it. And of course, there, there are dangers um, uh, in being an intellectual and particularly a public intellectual nowadays. Um, this is nothing particularly original that, that I'm going to say here in response to your prompt. But uh, you know very well that with the advent of the Internet um, and uh, the online world, 
uh, it's very dangerous um, in speaking your mind and going against the grain of common or customary opinion on highly charged subjects. So, you know, when you do that, um, there are likely to be all sorts of people out there who are going to either want to cancel you um, or destroy your reputation, uh, pile on, mobilize large numbers of other people online to say outlandish or outrageous things about you, which is very difficult for you to uh, respond to uh, or fight back against. So uh, I think in the present climate, uh, being a public intellectual is more difficult than it ever was before, so far as I can tell. I mean, I've, I've been around as a public intellectual myself for, you know, almost six decades, and my sense is that this is the way things are. But there's this other thing, too, that's associated with that, and I, I sort of refer to this at one point in my book, um, which is to say that, you know, with uh, Facebook and and all of the various platforms that people uh, are invested in right now there's this business that when when you write things you want to be liked you want to accumulate likes and George Steiner and Susan Sontag were not into that um, they were very happy to just sort of speak their mind and they didn't worry about um, how many people out there were going to check the box and like what they were saying of course they had the great advantage um, of having been able to continue to attract large readerships and large audiences, even while speaking their minds and saying things that drove people crazy. Um, so, you know, that, that, was very, that was very fortunate for them. But I think you're right. You know, the word intellectual itself is now, you know, it, it, it's, it's acquired a flavor, an accent that, that many people dislike. Um, to be an intellectual or to proclaim yourself an intellectual is now, by many people, I think, felt to be pretentious and unseemly. You know, why don't you just call yourself a writer or a commentator? Or, you know, or a journalist or something like that. Intellectual seems a little, as I say, exalted and pretentious. And um, But there it is. You know, in, in a couple of Woody Allen films, when the word intellectual is, uh, is invoked, Susan Zontag's name uh, is trotted out as a sort of exemplary sort of intellectual figure. And there's always, uh, even in some of these earlier Woody Allen films where her name is invoked, there's always this sense that there's something sort of wonderful and exalted about it, and also at the same time, a little funny. Yeah, and and it has the connotation of being elitist, which is another thing that is considered bad now. And um, and in, and you know, in your description of of George and Susan, I'd have to say they they were fairly elitist. And um, oh yes. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's no question about it, you know, and um, both of them, both of them were in in various ways. And of course, it was strange, you know, for people of, of who were old enough to have been around and reading in the magazines and the journals and and the early books of Susan Zontag. It seemed astonishing that anyone ever would ever think uh, to call her elitist because she, you know, she was associated very early on with this term, the new sensibility. That's her term. Um, and the new sensibility was a sensibility that had broken from uh, many of the standard conventions and decorums um, that had governed the arts and intellectual life up to the period of the 1960s when she came onto the scene. She made the case for different kinds of popular art, for what she called camp, um, and and any anyone who thought of her as elitist, you know, we would have thought in those days would have been crazy. But in, <laughs> in fact, very much like George Steiner, um, she spent most of her writing career um, very very scrupulously attempting, at least, to discriminate between um, the things that were really good and the things that were really bad to discriminate between things that were sort of easy or conventional or safe and other things that were risky and adventurous and therefore demanding and compelling. They were always doing that, both of them. And in that sense, they were really, as you say, um, elitist and proud to be. 
Um, you know, and I give examples, as you know, in, in my book, I give examples of the kind of language that both of them would use um, in talking not only about, um, you know, works of art, movies or, or books, but also talking about ideas. Uh, this was this was coarse. This was Philistine. This was gross. This was high. The, you know, that that kind of language very much marked the two of them as unapologetic elitists, just exactly as you say. Well, they both really were known, at least, say, widely as critics, and they both kind of rejected that. They didn't want to be known as critics. That's not what they wanted to be. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, both of them, um, uh, Zontag especially, uh, aspired to be an artist. Um, very early on, um, she published uh, a couple of early novels, um, and uh, she she made a few films, feature films, and these were not well received. Um, and uh, but she never ceased to aspire um, to become a, cr a great creative writer. And then in sort of mid mid career, she started to write some terrific short stories that came out in a book called I Etc. And they were terrific stories. Uh, and then late in her career, in, in the last decade or so of her life, she published two novels, both of which were very well received. Uh, one was called The Volcano Lover uh, in the early 90s. And the other one, some years later, was called In America. In America won the National Book Award. And, uh, and you would have thought, well, my God, uh, Susan Zuntak has finally, you know, made it. She's finally done what she always wanted to do, uh, which in some sense is true. But, you know, nobody reads those novels. Um, they're completely gone. Uh, people continue to read, um, you know, Zuntag's um, essays and her book on photography and her book Against Interpretation. But, uh, but nobody's reading those novels. So... It, it didn't happen. Uh, George Steiner also um, aspired um, to be uh, a fiction writer, and he, he published three books of fiction, one of which got a lot of attention. Um, it's a Holocaust novel. It's called The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H. A.H. is um, Adolf Hitler. And um, it got a lot of attention um, and a lot of attack, a lot of abuse. Um, and uh, it's a kind of a brilliant and strange little novel. Um, it was made into a, a, a play, and, and which played rather successfully on Broadway in New York City. And so both of them had uh, these other um, aspirations, you know, to write um, great fiction, and, and in Susan's case, also to make to make films. But the truth is, um, they were always both very clearly much more successful and acclaimed um, as people who wrote nonfiction um, essays and nonfiction books. And Susan especially was sort of disappointed in that. She um, and I have a couple of funny episodes in, in, in my book, <laughs> you know, in which, for example, I, I introduce her. And uh, and the, uh, at, at a public event, as, as I did every year for more than 30 years, and uh, and 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 uh, the, the emphasis in the introduction was on what Susan was for everybody who showed up um, in the audience, and that was to introduce her as a uh, as a great thinker, essayist, writer, and cultural critic, and uh, and she bristled at this. Um, she she just you know she bristled at the notion that. Guys like me, who were close friends of hers, just didn't get it. You know, they didn't understand that really what she was was right, a great artist, and she wasn't. You know, uh, so you know there was there was always that sort of tension in Susan Zontag's sense of self and in the sense of uh, how she wanted others to regard her. And this was not true of Steiner. Um, I mean, Steiner would have loved to be a great novelist or a great poet, but I mean, he knew that he wasn't, um, and he was more or less content to be uh, you know, sort of a gadfly, a provocateur, and to open up ideas um, in ways that were complicated and compelling to other people. M he was more or less content with that role. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Robert Boyers, author of Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Zontag and George Steiner. And uh, this is uh, 
the blurb on the book cover says, A delicious portrait of two difficult, brilliant intellectuals and a spirited vindication of criticism as a noble calling. So let's back up to your publication, Samagande. Tell me a little bit about how that got started, what it is, and is that part of how you got to know these two writers so well? Well, yes. Uh, thank you for that. Yes. Um, well, I, you know, I, I started Selma Goody in 1965. I was a boy singer. Uh, I grew up in a working class uh, family in Brooklyn, uh, New York, and, and uh, I had no idea about money. We didn't have any money in our family. We never did anything. We never traveled anywhere. And uh, but I, I made money as a singer um, and uh, I sang in a, in a large um, Jewish temple on Saturdays um, and I was the soloist in the choir and uh, and I was hired by uh, dozens and dozens of people in the congregation to sing at their weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that and uh, I never knew anything about the money my parents never mentioned anything about it and when I think about it in retrospect <laughs> it's sort of astonishing to me that they didn't simply use the money because well, we could have used the money uh, in our in our family, but they put it in a fund. And um, and when I graduated from uh, college and at the age of 21, uh, they gave me almost thirty thousand dollars, which um, in 1963 was a lot of money. Oh my uh, gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was a lot of money. I had no idea. No one had ever mentioned anything like that to me. It was part of my sort of graduation. I, I graduated, and the very day of the graduation uh, activities, we we went to dinner together uh, at a little restaurant in our in our neighborhood, and um, and my parents um, presented me with this money, and and of course they were then hugely disappointed and even astonished that instead of using the money to buy a house or something like that, uh, I, a couple of years later, invested it in a little magazine. Um, and what are the prospects for anything good happening with a little magazine? You know, I mean, what are you going to do for you in your life? You know, it is a little magazine, a quarterly magazine. But this was the age of the little magazine. Um, there were dozens and dozens of little magazines, um, most um, sort of self-respecting colleges and universities had their own little magazine. There was the Yale Review, there was the Harvard Review. You, you get the idea, right? Yes, and yeah. they, they had that. Well, um, I had this little magazine. I ran it out of my studio apartment in New York City while I was in graduate school. Um, and uh, and then after a few years of bringing out, with very di great difficulty, bringing out the issues of the magazine, and, and more or less running out of all the money that I uh, that I had, um, various colleges began to contact me and uh, and say we would like to take on your magazine, and so I I was able to to move on uh, to Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs. That was the one I chose. Um, it was a beautiful town, Saratoga Springs. It was only three hours from New York City where my family lived. And, uh, and I thought this is a great thing. And I went there. So I had that. I had the magazine. Uh, and I had managed to attract to the magazine all sorts of good writers. And through the magazine, I, I got in contact with um, Steiner and Zontag. And they were both... They both wanted to become part of the life of the magazine, and they did. Um, Steiner, I had the advantage of studying with in graduate school, as I mentioned, and so we we sort of had an. <laughs> I, I really got a kick out of your uh, of that. You want to tell the story of uh, your interview with him? Oh, I'd love to. Well, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was, as I say, and as his wife, uh, on when they were both in their final month of life, and my wife and I were visiting them, as, as his wife said, he was a ball buster, and he was. He was all the way back that way, even even when I was his, his student. Um, yeah, so we, in order to get into Steiner's class, we, uh, this graduate class, we had to be interviewed. Um, a lot of people who wanted to get into this class was, uh, he was already famous, 
1965, and he was team teaching the course with another very famous, then very famous person named Connor Cruz O'Brien, who was the Irish ambassador to the United States and to the United Nations, and a, and a very uh, sort of great thinker and writer. Um, so everybody wanted to get in, and I, I went to the interview, and Steiner. Um, you know, said, so talk to me about your German. And I said, no, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't have German. And he said, what? You're applying for a course like this and, and you don't have any German? I said, well, you know, I, I, looked at the, I looked at the requirements. It didn't say you had to have German. And O'Brien, who's a much nicer fellow than George, said, well, George, you know, we're, we're going to be running the class in English and we're going to be reading everything in English. He can read things in translation. And, and you know, and, and Steiner said, well, he was exasperated at the idea. But meanwhile, he let me in. I got into the class, and there were just you know ten of us, ten students uh, at the seminar table in the class. And after a, a couple of class meetings, um, Steiner would frequently turn to me and uh, shoot me uh, a passage in German from some difficult uh, German writer. Um, and he would say, "So what? What do you make of this passage, Boyers?" <laughs> And I would have to say, but, but Professor Steiner, you, you remember that at the interview, I, I told you I, I, I didn't have German, and I'm really sorry. And he would say, what? You're taking up a seat at the seminar table, and you don't have German? And someone else with German could have had that seat instead of you. So this is a very improbable foundation for a close friendship that lasted for 50 years. But there it was. <laughs> So I'm sorry I interrupted you. You were so you were you um, were moving the magazine to uh, Skidmore, and you want to continue from there. Skidmore, and 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 they both, you know, and uh, they both very much liked the magazine. And Steiner wrote almost two dozen uh, essays for the magazine. Uh, both of them participated frequently in our. Uh, conferences and they came up to the college and they gave lectures. I had no money. You know, it's a little magazine. We have no money to speak of in the budget. Um, Zontag would would come up for a Selma Gundy conference for three days and we would pay her $500 to be there for three days to prepare a talk that she would have to deliver that would appear in the pages of the magazine. And uh, so that was definitely the foundation, you know, and uh, without that, I, you know, I don't think I, I would have had the opportunity to become close to these people and to know them outside the framework of these sort of public events and these sort of literary interventions in the life of the magazine. Well, there must be something really special about that magazine and about what you've put together in the community surrounding it that made people like this want to, in, in, in a sense, almost donate their time. Yeah, that's that's really what it what it involves. And, you know, most little magazines, you know, do not, you know, publish people of this caliber. Um, they can't. They, they can't afford to do it. You know, people, most people, even people who who do very well in life and, and make a good living you know, teaching at Harvard or or Yale or whatever, uh, you know, like to be able to write for magazines that will pay them a good sum. Uh, but Salma Gundy uh, was a was a special kind of magazine that attracted. Um, high-level public intellectuals right from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, this was, I, I was good at this. Um, this was, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and so on. I, you know, and I've done lots of books and so on. But I think the best thing I've ever done in my life, apart from my, my marriage, um, that's the best <laughs> thing I've done in my life. But, but apart from that um, is the magazine. Uh, I was able to create this magazine on a shoestring and really to, uh, to continue to run it at a very high level and attract people like this. So that was, that was a great thing. And, um, and of course, Stein, the presence of Steiner and Zontag in the mix of the magazine always over the decades attracted lots of other first-rate writers and thinkers to want to write for the magazine and participate in our conferences. It, it, it sort of worked like that. Right, right. So these conferences were every year? 
some of the time every year, some of the time every other year, and those conferences would always then be uh, sort of be taped, and the transcripts would be edited, and and they would um, then become special issues of the magazine. So they would be you know on on a wide range of subjects, you know on on the clash of civilizations, on race and racism in America, um, uh, on all sorts of subjects, and they would come out of the special issue of the magazine, and then those special issues would be published as books by leading book publishers in this country and frequently in translation in other countries as well. So, you know, this is, you know, a little magazine, you know, at a small upstate liberal arts college in New York, um, and and it would have this other reach, and, and that was also pleasing uh, to Steiner and Zontag, you know, that the stuff that they were contributing um, would you know have this this other kind of readership and audience beyond our little world you know in upstate New York now are these conferences the New York State Summer Writers Institute or was that something different it's different um, I, I mean Zontag was um, very much involved in the New York State Summer Writers Institute, you know, which is a, a one-month July uh, writers program that we run at the college, and you know, which offers you know workshops in poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, and brings a lot of the best writers in the world together over the course of that month. And uh, and Zuntag loved to participate in that. Steiner never participated in that. He didn't come here in the summertime, um, and uh, you know, so he would come during the year, and and Zuntag would come for conferences during the year. So the conferences were were always part of the academic year, anywhere between sort of September and early May. And uh, again, they usually would run for three days, and they would usually bring together, oh, anywhere between 10 and 15 or so uh, leading writers and thinkers. And we would sit around a table, and for three days, um, we would... (laughs) About a subject, I'm not kidding, it's been three days, you know. I mean, editing those conference transcripts was a hell of a job. You know, you had 10 or 15 people speaking, frequently talking at cross purposes, and, uh, and you know, you sort of got to sort of have to create, uh, uh, reconcile all the different things. Zuntuck herself was great um, at helping me to edit um, the um, the conference transcript that she participated in. She was a brilliant uh, editor, line editor, and she was very compulsive about, about the conferences in which she was a participant. So I have in my Salmagundi files, you know, pages and pages and pages of transcripts that were, you know, edited um, in pencil um, by Susan Zontag, and, uh, and that was a great thing. So each conference was centered around a certain theme? Yes, exactly. So and how did you come up with the themes? I would just come up with it basically. Well, sometimes I would come up with it because um, either George or Susan would propose a theme, and, and they would say, why don't, why don't we think about you know doing a conference on this or that? But most often my wife and I would come up with a theme, and it was something that we were ourselves interested in and which we knew other people would be interested in. So you know, an obvious one is uh, we, we ran several conferences in the 90s and early 2000s on race and racism in America. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, we'd get leading thinkers, black and white, um, to sit at the table and debate and talk about these kinds of things. A little later on, we did one of these conferences on identity, um, uh, which include, included racial issues, but not exclusively that. Um, and again, we, um, we always just sort of try to think what would be interesting, not only to a readership, to an audience, but what would be interested to, interesting to the kinds of people we wanted to invite to sit at the table and talk about these things. You know, would, you know, would Susan Zontag be interested in talking about a very uh, arcane subject? We, yeah, the, answer, the, the answer was yes. I said to her one day, why don't we have a little three-day conference on kitsch? Um, now, kitsch, it's a, you know, it's a subject most people are not interested in. But uh, we thought we could make it interesting, and we knew that Susan Sontag would be interested in it, and sure enough, uh, she was, and lots of other smart people were interested in it as well. And so, you know, we could do that. We, we could ask, what, what is the source of this strange 
phenomenon called kitsch, which a lot of um, intellectuals wrote about in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, um, and which you know seemed to have somewhat passed out of currency um, in American uh, intellectual and academic life. And we decided to sort of bring it back onto the table. And it was very easy. As soon as we came up with the idea, it was easy to attract some of the leading writers and thinkers in the country to sit for three days for virtually no money and just talk about it. <laughs> and are, is this still happening? Are you still doing this? We are. We're still doing it. In fact, next week, on October 27th, we're doing a one-day conference. We very rarely ever do a one-day conference. We're doing a one-day conference on the subject of taste. Um, and we have terrific people coming together to talk about taste. Of course, I wish George and Susan were alive uh, to participate in this, but of course, they're not. Um, but yeah, we're doing one on taste. And, and then the next year, we're doing a conference. We've already got uh, a considerable lineup for that on the question are we all fundamentalists? Mm. And uh, so, yeah, we're doing it, you know, again, wow. trying to do a conference a year. And, and uh, it, it's great for the, for the magazine. And it's great for the audience who comes. And it's great for the speakers who are, you know, excited enough to want to devote their, their three days or their one day to sitting there and just talking. That's so fun. I mean, it sounds amazing. And um, kind of reminds me of you know, I always thought, wouldn't it be great to be like in the age of the salon or the Algonquin yeah. round table? And you seem to have recreated that. I think so. I mean, that that's very much the feeling, I think, that we, you know, we aspired at least to generate uh, in these conferences. And of course, it's the sort of thing that we wanted to sort of generate in the pages of the magazine. So, you know, you if you open up a special issue of the magazine, you know, and, and, and it's built, this particular issue of the magazine is built around one of those conferences. Well, I mean, those are the most popular issues of the magazine. Um, more people are, want to buy the magazine, are interested in the magazine, order the magazine, and talk about the magazine. Um, in, in the past, over the years, as we brought out special issues of the magazine, there have been you know, articles about those issues in some of the sort of major national magazines. And very often, uh, in, in the past, this was very much the case, uh, when we would announce um, a conference, um, for example, on, on the subject of art and intellect in America some years ago, it was featured uh, in the um, Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times. It was the front page story in the Village Voice newspaper. And, you know, so, yeah, we, we, we wanted to sort of uh, attract another kind of attention to the work of the magazine. And, uh, and we, we, we did succeed doing that. Now, the magazine is printed, but it's also available online, correct? It, there's, there's an online sort of edition that's not really the same as the print edition of the magazine. So we do have a site. Anybody can go to it, you know, just Salma Gundy. Um, and, and you can read um, all sorts of things that have appeared in the magazine in addition to special online features, uh, which are posted there on our site. Uh, by our associate editor, Mark Woodworth. So uh, he's, 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 he's the, the person who really runs the online site for the magazine. But mainly, you know, still, um, uh, Salma Gundy is a print magazine, you know, and, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm getting on to a certain age right now, and uh, I don't know how much longer I'll be able to keep up with it, but so far I'm, I'm in good shape, and, and I love doing it, and... <laughs> People like it, so I'm, I'm doing it. You're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Robert Boyers, author of Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Zondag and George Steiner. Robert, why don't you read us a little bit from your book? Okay, I'd love to do that. Um, I will say that, um, and, and you'll, you'll know that, of course, that this is true. Um, this is uh, a memoiristic book, and it contains... Um, lots of sort of juicy anecdotes and I'm not going to read those anecdotes. I, you know, <laughs> and 
you know, I can talk about the, the anecdotes, I can tell about the anecdotes, but the anecdotes are a little long to read out. Um, you know, one of them, for example, is the anecdote I told at the beginning of, of today's conversation, you know, about myself um, trying to get into George Steiner's uh, seminar when I was a graduate student. But I have lots of funny stories to tell, and I, I could tell one or two, but the passages I've chosen to read are not exactly anecdotal, but I'll, but I'll read them. Um, so, though both George and Susan often felt the sting of rebuke and did what they could to provoke it, they never quite settled into the role of beloved dissidents or contrarians. Not for either of them the status of what Jenny Diskey in the London Review called the dedicated social troublemakers who, as the decades roll by, find that those they wish to irritate get used to them and even begin to regard them with a certain affection. Not for either of them the status of a beloved puppy that is always forgiven for soiling the carpet neither quite became a licensed controversialist at whom people just smile and shake their heads. So the contempt directed at my two difficult friends was often a function of envy. They were provocative writers whose essays and books created a constant stir. Zontag was certainly the most visible intellectual in the English-speaking world from the mid-60s until her death in 2004, and Steiner was for 30 years a regular book critic for The New Yorker and a figure around whom international conferences were mounted. Additional acclaim arose from the major awards, prestigious lecture series, honorary degrees, book sales far beyond what other critics and thinkers could imagine. Even in Steiner's case, frequent appearances on European television shows, talk shows, seated across from the best minds and artists of his generation. How not to envy that sort of good fortune and to suspect that there was something wrong or unseemly about it? How not to feel that both gave off airs of unbecoming omniscience and self-confidence, as if they had taken to heart the words of the Nobel Prize writer Elias Canetti, who in 1936 wrote, I cannot become modest. Too many things burn in me. So that's one little passage. And uh, here's another. Neither George nor Susan was always easy to be close to. In a 1980 essay on Roland Barthes, one of Zontag's heroes, she wrote that his interest in you tended to be your interest in him, so that when he greeted her with the words, ah, Susan, toujours fidèle, she could feel that those words were apt. She was always faithful, always interested in him. George and Susan knew that I was faithful to them in that sense, wanting to know everything about what they were writing and doing and thinking, and still neither ever quite suggested that I existed only to admire them and show them to themselves as they wished to be reflected. Both indulged me, allowed me to resist them, argue with them, even in books and essays I was writing. If neither was in the least ordinary, regular, companionably relaxed, they were, as the Cold Porter song has it, always true to you, darling, in their fashion. Strange that the enmity they aroused was in evidence even at the time of their deaths, the distaste obvious even in one or another obituary notice or send-up. George was never entirely forgiven by some for the theatricality of his pronouncements, the warmth of sobriety, the breadth of his reach. To her detractors, Susan seemed almost comical in the extremity of her ardor and the presumption of authority that informed her writing. Both George and Susan were emblems of the not-me. I was somewhat less avid, less provocative, less relentless, and it occurred to me that my own more modest nature was for each of them an attraction. Now and then I feared that they must think me bland, that my resolute commitment to a kind of sanity would seem to them a species of spiritual impoverishment. Others 
were fearful lest they be consumed in the company of two such imposing figures, thinking perhaps of the caution voiced by the French writer Jean Amory, who enjoined us to be careful or you will burn all ablaze. But I was tempted by the heat and illumination given off my, by my improbable friends, and they were apparently eager for my company, though I had reason to wonder how far the loyalty of such ferocious, even fanatic persons might extend. I understood that George and Susan thought me weirdly equable, balanced, less than thrilling, however much I passed for electric and dangerous in the precincts of the American Academy. <laughs> so is that is that enough or shall I read one more? Let's go ahead and read one more, Robert. All right. Okay. One of the first things I learned about George and Susan once we became friends was that they disliked to put it mildly and mistrusted one another and marveled that I could find a way to be friends with a person as forbidding as each deemed the other to be. In fact, they saw one another only a few times and then under my auspices, as I report in the course of this memoir, those times produced a number of the most wrenching and hilarious moments of my life. But then almost everything about George and Susan was improbable. What the cultural critic Mark Greif wrote about Susan was largely applicable to George as well. Susan, he wrote, made you acknowledge that she was more intelligent than you. Likewise, George. She then compelled you to admit that she felt more than you did. True, though perhaps not in the same degree for George. She responded to art more vividly and completely. Not only her sense, but her sensibility was grander. So with George. Both were grand, if by grand we mean that they didn't curry favor or make excuses for themselves or for anyone else. Grand, too, in their determination to let you in on certain secrets, whom to read, how to gaze, what else there was to learn. learn. Though both were very human, which to say, some of the time vulnerable and generous, neither of them inspired in me the slightest impulse to identify with them. They were too large, and the loathing they came to have for each other clearly had much to do with the sense that there was room on the current scene for only one such person. Hmm. So, I'll, yeah. So, so that, that's a few little passages. Well, thank you. And that was Robert Boyer's reading from Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Sondag and George Steiner. And there's really, like you said, a lot of fascinating anecdotes as well as sort of a, I don't know, um, kind of an overview of the life of of what was going on intellectually in the United States and in academia during this time and, and subjects that for, for those of us out here in the Midwest and, you know, I'm a business person, so this is very foreign to my world in a way. I had to drop out of college when I was 18. And, ah. go to, and go to work and, ah. and, um, and, uh, never, I kept trying to go back, never finished. And, um, you know, so I never, I never, uh, experienced being in the environment of what you, you know, your life and, and the life of these two. So it's been kind of a, a window into it for me. Well, that's great. I, I was I was hoping that that the book uh, would accomplish that, you know, because I, you know, in some ways, you know, I, the 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 impulse, you know, first of all, was to uh, write about George, you know, who was again very close to us, um, and and I mentioned to you that he died in February of 2020, just before the COVID um, sort of period began, right, the next month, and and that his granddaughter was with us. He here at Skidmore College and was at our house uh, frequently during the period right after he died. And, and we were just thinking about him a lot. Sometimes we would sit upstairs, my wife and I, with, with his granddaughter, and, uh, and we would watch 
uh, with her uh, some uh, some interviews with him on YouTube and so on, and uh, which is just so very moving and, and compelling for the three of us to do. Um, and I thought I've got, I've got to write about him. And of course, uh, I, I'd often written about Susan Sontag in essays, but not about not in a personal memoiristic way. So. Um, at a certain point when I began to do this, I realized that in doing it, I would have an opportunity uh, to sort of open a window into the life that my wife and I have led um, through the magazine, through the New York State Summer Writers Institute. And I knew that this would be an interesting um, opportunity for people to, again, have a glimpse into something that I think most people uh, just haven't had. Um, and it's more than conceivable to me that most people wouldn't want to have that <laughs> kind of a life, you know, uh, because it's filled with uh, all sorts of pleasure, all sorts of stimulation. But also, as I try to convey in the book, it's also filled with a lot of tension and conflict and so on. Um, you know, and to live in this environment, um, you have to be willing to sort of take uh, a lot of a lot of abuse, um, even from people that that you're close to, um, you know. And I again, I, I report in the book, as you know, many of the occasions in which uh, George and Susan were um, not just in disagreement with things that I said and did, but you know, were honestly uh, nasty and angry about it, and so on. And and this was true in my uh, transactions with a lot of other people with whom I was not anywhere near so close as as I was with George and Susan. So that. I think does provide an interesting, you know, glimpse into a world that most people don't experience in anything like the same way. And uh, the first responses to the book that I've had suggest that um, it's interesting to people um, who haven't had that experience. I've, I've gotten already, the book's been out less than a month, and I've had lots of mail, lots of email uh, about the book from many of it from people I don't know. Um, and uh, and it's, it's been gratifying to see that, yes, this is an odd kind of world uh, that I'm dealing with here in this book, but people are finding it interesting. I Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you talked before about how with the Internet today and, and how public, um, someone who speaks out publicly can get so harshly criticized and canceled and so forth. It's not like that wasn't always happening. And in the criticism, if you spoke your mind and it differed from the, you know, what was kind of generally accepted, you were always subject. I mean, people were always subject to harsh criticism and, and, but it, you know, the difference now, of course, is it's more, um, happens a lot faster <laughs> and and you can see you you see that what everybody else is saying about you a lot quicker <laughs> yeah absolutely no that's absolutely right Every, what you just said is, is so true um and again if, if you want to see the degree to which long before the advent of the internet in, in which uh people of very considerable sort of stature like George and Susan were subjected to merciless uh, attack and criticism at different times. It's easy to do. You just sort of go back and Google and so on and, and you can see it. Um, I mean, there were numbers of occasions in which George was violently attacked in, in the most absurd ways. Uh, and on some of those occasions, I, I answered the attack. I, I wrote you know, letters to the editor, to the New York Times book review and to other publications, you know, basically saying the the attack on Steiner is not only preposterous, but it's actually filled with um, inaccuracies and misleading statements and so on. And so, yes, that existed even just exactly as you say, it existed in the past as well. Um, and I mean, if you if you go online and you look at some of the uh, attacks on George Steiner that were occasioned by the publication of that Hitler novel of his mm. called The Portage, Christopher, oh, it's quite fantastic. I mean, Steiner was not only Jewish, um, but he was a, a writer who often wrote about the Holocaust. Um, he has a great essay um, called A Kind of Survivor that appeared in the Jewish Monthly Commentary uh, a very long time ago. Um, but when he wrote The Portage, 
it's it's a, it's a it's a novel after all, and it's a very strange kind of novel. It's predicated on the idea that Adolf Hitler didn't die at the end of the Second World War in the bunker, that he escaped uh, Nazi Germany at the end of the war, and like a lot of other Nazis, he he escaped to Latin America and he went to Argentina, like Adolf Eichmann, for example, who was captured by the Israelis and and was the subject of a of a famous public trial. Well. In this novel, Adolf Hitler uh, is, is captured in the jungles of Latin America by a group of, of sort of Israeli Nazi hunters, and he's being brought back to Israel to stand trial. And all I'm going to tell you is that in the way the novel is put together and structured, there are different speeches in the novel, some of them coming from the Jewish Israeli Nazi hunters, and one of them coming from Adolf Hitler. Hitler's is the last speech in the novel. So, um, and it's a, it's a crazy and really um, uh, very um, disturbing speech that Hitler is made to give. And it's completely invented, of course, completely invented, it's fiction. Because um, uh, you know, he, he didn't survive you know, the Second World War. And uh, the fact that um, he, he is given the last word in the novel meant that people attack Steiner as uh, a self-hating uh, anti-Semitic Jew. Um, you know, that rather than thinking of, of what he was sort of trying to do as a sort of a literary strategy, they, you know, they made it personal, you know, that Steiner was somehow, I mean, celebrating Adolf Hitler, um, an absurdity. But again, if you, if you go online and you read some of the, um, some of the more idiotic responses to that book, you, you can see how, just as you say, it was possible long ago, long before the advent of the internet for people to, um, to say the most improbable and disgusting things about writers and thinkers like these. Well, you know, one of, we only have a few minutes, but I did want to talk about one of my favorite chapters in the book was when you talk about um, Steiner's lectures on Shakespeare. Oh yeah, that was a great. That was great. I'm so glad you. I'm so glad you liked that chapter, um, because you know, having been Steiner's student, you know, in in the '60s when he was, you know, really a ball buster and so on, and then become, you know, a very close friend of his, um, I was thrilled at this opportunity. Um, you know, we we saw one another at least once or twice a year. He came to New York in the spring every year for about a week and my wife and I went to New York and saw him frequently then and we traveled around with him at different times but uh, in 1990 um, he, he said you know you, you've got to come to Geneva he was teaching at the University of Geneva uh, you've got to come for some days and, and, and we'll have a nice time I want you to see what I'm, my situation over here so I, uh, I went there and he wanted me most especially to see him uh, in his Shakespeare class now this is like I, we you know, we say Shakespeare class. This is a class held in a large auditorium, um, and once a week in the morning from 9:30 to noon. And in that auditorium, um, many, many, many hundreds of people were present. Only a small number of them were students at the University of Geneva. Most of the people there were people who traveled to Geneva each week to attend George Steiner's Shakespeare class. Many of them were middle-aged or older business people, um, stockbrokers, doctors, lawyers, um, you know, politicians, and they were coming in on trains and planes from different places in Europe to attend this class. Many of them that I met had been attending it for 10 years already, and they hoped to go through all 37 Shakespeare plays with George Steiner. He was just regarded as the great maestro, um, and he was always interesting, scrupulous in going through the text. Can you imagine an entire semester devoted to one play? Um, very close reading, and that seemed to all of these people, and I could understand it when I was there myself, it seemed to all of them completely thrilling. And Steiner seemed the perfect teacher. He was and truly... I love, yeah, I love that you wrote about the one that you saw was about Othello. 
Yeah, it was about that. That play was the play that was that they were dealing with that semester. And and my God, what what he made of that play was just spectacular. Again, I only saw the one the one session uh, on that one one memorable morning, but I could easily understand being there why all of these people. They could do it, obviously. They could afford it. They could take off the time um, on that one day a week to come into Geneva and attend. And I just thought that George had grown tremendously as a teacher and in many ways as a human being in the 25 years between the time he was my teacher in graduate school and the time I saw him do this uh, this class. And I, I just felt I had to include that chapter in the book. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. And thank you so much for being with us today, Robert. This has been a pleasure. A great pleasure for me as well. Thanks so much for having me. And we always wrap up with a quote. And so I'm going to read one from your book, uh, from Adam Phillips, another public intellectual. Relationships should make us feel better. Why else bother? But there are different ways of feeling better. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you're you're basically, uh, that's what this book is about. It is. It is. It's about friendship and yes. different ways of, of feeling uh, the pleasure of friendship. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Mm-hmm.